What is up everyone and welcome back to this new episode of the Big Ideas in App Architecture podcast where I speak to Madalena Tanasi who is the CTO of Calibra and I and Madalena get into some really great conversations around her career, her experience at Metadata and what she is doing at Calibra as a CTO, getting into all the amazing things that her team is working on. We get into some of her philosophies around engineering and how she's building teams that are solving interesting problems. One of the most exciting things in this episode is her perspective on AI and AI governance that their team are considering and their users need. So jump into this episode and have a great time listening to Madalena. All right, Madalena, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Let's start off. For everybody listening, you know, Madalena here, she is amazing. She's working with Calibra. She's uh, uh, handling some really critical things for the company. Uh, you know, so before I butcher what you do, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do at Calibra. Uh, so a little bit about myself. Um, I, uh, I think of myself as a mission-driven technologist. Um, about my role at Culebra, I'm the chief technology officer at Culebra. I've been in this position for three years. But again, like very important for me is that technology for a purpose. And from the very beginning, even before deciding to do computer science, I was fascinated about the potential of technology to solve some of the biggest problems. And um, more by uh, accident than uh, having a very intentional path in terms of my career, I made choices that were aligned with that uh, sentiment that technology is for a purpose. And I found myself a few years ago really looking at Culebra, who is uh, trying to solve some of the big problems that we have right now. We we have an explosion of data. The biggest companies out there have an incomprehensible amount of data coming every single day. And everybody's trying to make sense of their data. And we are trying to make sense of all the data that assaults us. Can you imagine how uh, that is for the biggest companies? Uh, Culebra is uh, the largest SaaS provider for uh, data intelligence solutions. We we do have a platform that uh, covers all kinds of data uh, solutions from cataloging and governing your data to lineage, uh, data quality, privacy, you name it. Um, and it's particularly exciting for us right now with AI and how that's changing everything that is done in this space and how data is used and what is used for, but also really just taking this idea of governing data to governing for AI and AI governance. Yeah, no, that's pretty cool because you you brought up like everybody knows, like, and especially in the last decade, right? We've been saying data is the new oil. Uh, and but in the, the recently, in the last few years, we have figured out how to tap into that oil and pipe it out and turn that into something. Right. And it's exciting. And f- four months ago, when I was talking to you, AI was at a different journey. We were at a different point. And in four months, there have been so many things that have happened. That's like we just have to be. You know, I was actually thinking because when when we spoke about this first time, um, you know, th- there was something there, but I feel like it's almost good that we waited uh, with this uh, by chance because I-, I feel like so much has changed and it's changing so fast. It's almost every day it's something new and we've never been in such an accelerated uh, reality in tech. Yeah, I agree. This is the fastest I have seen things change. Um, and, you know, I, I keep in touch with most of the things that happen. Like I have, I write, I have write, I've written my own agent that scours and scrapes the internet and summarizes the latest information and 
what i am seeing every day is that agent fails actually you know why it's failing is because when it tries to like scrape everything and put that into a json and tries to load it it fails to load because there is like a threshold it's there. just too much it times data out. yeah it times out and it's in, in, it's insane uh, about uh, the way things have changed but anyways i i really am excited to talk to you about all the amazing things that you have been doing but uh, you know you've had a fascinating career you know i, mean, I was just going through your linkedin just remi- reminding myself you've worked at metadata for 15 years which is something that we should get into a little bit uh, but Tell me a little bit about your early, uh, you know, career. How did a young Madalena decide to like, hey, this is what I want to do. What what inspired you to get into tech? Given where we are, a lot of people are curious about how I did it because there is these assumptions that you have this grand plan and you're super committed and you execute on that grand plan. And as I was saying earlier, um, a lot of it feels by accident, but it's not really that much by accident as it's having a purpose and having that guide you. And my journey has been very zigzag. It's been sometimes really straight and sometimes um, going sideways. But um, I, I had no plans to, to go into computer science. Um, I um, actually was preparing to go to an architecture school, like not software architecture, buildings architecture. And I spent a um, couple of years in high school going tutoring and, and everything related to uh, learning about buildings and designing buildings. I, I was really fascinated by by beautiful things. And I I realized um, as I was going through, through that journey that I'm not really good at drawing. I can be decent, I can be adequate, I can never be really, really good. And um, for me, it was you know, I have some skills, some undeniable skills. I've been pretty good at math, physics, science, um, always kind of ahead of, of my peer group. And there was this expectation that I'm going to do something with these skills. And um, I wanted to do something with those skills. And at that point, um, you know, computers and internet and technology was kind of picking up and it was the latest and newest thing. And everyone was saying, this is the future. And it's like, okay, what what do you need to get into the computer science schools like math, physics? I can do this. So kind of when they passed the exam, there's like super high competition in Bucharest at the time for computer science. Everyone wanted in and, you know, I just got in and I, I didn't even have a computer before going to college uh, to do computer science. And, and I loved it. It was the right choice, but it was a very, very last moment choice, uh, mostly focused on what can I do that I can be good at. It brings all these skills together. Like, that's amazing. Like, to know that somebody is a CTO today and chose this career and didn't have a computer to begin with, like, was just inspired to bring... It's it's a fascinating story. How was the how was the computer scene when you... Like, the science scene in Bucharest and Romania when you, when you started off? Was it, like, uh, something that was picking up in the country? Uh, how was that for you? I mean, it, it was emerging. Um... It was, I um, actually went, because of those skills that, that I had to recognize, I, I went to a technical high school. I had some, you know, computer lab classes, part of my uh, high school education. So it's not that I saw a computer first time in, in college. I just didn't have my own uh, until then. There was, by the time I finished uh, college, there were a few companies, uh, startups that um, were based in Bucharest and other big cities that were starting to get into the field, but it was really, really small, just... Uh, um, a lot of technical STEM uh, educated people getting into it. So it was very, very interesting. Gotcha. That's amazing. 
Yeah. I mean, it's great to know how somebody starts a story. And I love to hear people's story because it, it inspires so many people who listen, you know, who are on a different journey and different points in life, you know. So thank you for sharing that. I was curious now to get into a little bit more about from there on you. You've had a significant career. You spent almost 15 years at Metadata starting as an engineer and then you took some management roles. Uh, so tell us a little bit about those beginnings uh, and and what, what kind of shaped your early part of the career. Yeah, so I, I had no plan whatsoever to go into management. Uh, let's start there. Uh, I didn't have a great plan. For me, it was, hey, I want to pick a company or a role that where I can help with something that is important to me. And uh, Medidata, I don't know uh, how much of your audience knows about Medidata, but Medidata as uh, the largest platform for uh, clinical trials. So a lot of the companies that are uh, inventing new drugs and new uh, medical technology are running the clinical trials on Medidata's platform. And back then, Medidata was actually really, really small. Uh, I was employee 247 or something like that. So not tiny small, but small uh, comparatively. And uh, they had a single product. Um, it was the, the beginning of a, a big, great journey. Um, I liked what they did. They uh, Their skills required for the job aligned with what I was doing, and I applied and they got me. Um, but of course, as I was saying, for me, it's always been technology for a purpose. So it's never really satisfied with just doing what was asked of me, I kind of started working around my scope and, and, and expanding it a bit and putting two and two together and uh, coming up with ideas and, and proposals. And um, my then boss noticed that, you know, I'm, I'm interested in that space and gave me a very um, unusual goal. It's like, this is your, your year-end review is going to depend on you achieving this one thing. I need you to be known by one executive that you do not know. I need when I go there and we do calibration or whatever, and I say your name, one of the people on the executive team should know who you are. And it's like, this is ridiculous. Like, no, I, I, what am, who am I, you know, software engineer X on this corner of the floor speaking with executives. But, you know, I've always been good with challenges and I don't even remember who I approached, but by the end of the year, they, they knew my name somehow. And it was just such an interesting revelation for me. I feel like ultimately it's been the single biggest differentiator uh, for me and I think could be for anyone that is doing technology for a purpose. Um, realizing that being able to explain deeply technical topics to business folks is what's going to tremendously increase your ability to make an impact. Uh, because for many people, the ones that decide, the ones that deal with the money, the ones that make the business decisions, what gets done, what doesn't get done, technology is this black box. And they understand about it something, but not enough to feel truly comfortable with making decisions. And if you're able to really just take something that is abstract and explain it to them in a way that they get it, your ability to impact is tremendous. And that's what I realized with that crazy goal. And I feel like it's been something that has continuously pushed me forward because when I found something that I cared about, I found a way to explain what I had in mind to the person that made the decision. Yeah, no, that's amazing. Because when you were saying this, I have heard this from another person, exactly same, quote by quote, this, this idea that this is actually an art and not many people can do it. But there are few who have been gifted with this idea or this ability to look at a complex technical problem and know how that works and then distill that simplify that and talk about it to non-technical people who also need to make 
decisions. So that's that's what you kind of discovered. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's really that that idea is like, and, and you're right, it's a gift, right? Like uh, being a technologist, often you're with you the hands and head and everything in technology, and you're not really thinking about people that don't get it in the same way you do. But for me, it was like, the reality that I had that gift, but more importantly, that someone noticed and put two and two together and challenged me to actually have that interaction. And how do you go as an engineer and speak with an exec that is not on technology? You have to figure out how to explain to them in a way that gets it. So it was a big, interesting revelation for me. Yeah, I've had those moments in my life where I have to do some like some things like this where I'm mostly on the business side of things, but I have a major withdrawal symptoms, you know, like I need to code something. <laughs> so how I compensate for that is either I will find a project or POC, work on it within the company, or I'll find something outside. But because I, I, I am also somebody who likes to be in these two worlds, but uh, for some reason, I have like major withdrawal symptoms. Like I do need to look at code and do some coding and things like that. So did you, as you moved up, in management, did you continue to also like um, stay on top of technology, worked on tech, uh, code level? Most definitely in my uh, career at Medidata, I was very, very close to the code and action um, really all the way uh, to the end of my career there, in part because I was the original engineer on a lot of the products that I ended up leading that became foundational for uh, Medidata's platform. And I was still the one that knew all the skeletons in the closets and um, could trace back many of the decisions. Um, I, I'm a little bit less close to the code uh, at Culibra um, because a lot of the decision predates me, but also uh, the tech stack is different than what I'm comfortable with as an engineering. That's not to say that I'm not in Git looking at people's code more often that they are comfortable and I'm not in Jira commenting on requirements more often than everyone is comfortable. So maybe that's kind of how I deal with with the withdrawal. I kind of, sometimes I get bored and I go really, really deep and everyone is freaked out. It's like, what happened? It's like, nothing, nothing. Just like- Why are you looking at Jira code? <laughs> like, why are you looking at Jira? Why are you looking at Git? What happened? Why are you looking at logs? So I, I, I do some of that. Yeah, but you- also earned it right like you've also earned it you've been in the space you're a veteran you understand how this works now as a chief technology officer of course your roles and the the objective and the outcomes that you're driving is different from what you are doing as an engineer right uh, so i wanted to dive into that a bit but you brought up a great point about calibra uh, the tech stack and the tech stack that you have it uh, we're working at at Medidia. tell us a little bit about how these two were different what were the cha- what are the challenges uh, that you were trying to solve from a technology point of view the part that is very, very similar between these two companies, and it's not, it's not the same tech stack. Let's start there. The part that was very similar is that when I joined these companies, both of them were in their second data, decade of existence. Um, and when you're there and you work in the enterprise space, like the customer base for these two companies are like the largest companies out there, Global 500. In 10 years, you've accumulated a lot of technology. There is no such thing as, hey, this is our tech stack. You have built all kinds of things. You've started uh, when the norm was uh, something, and then now the norm is different, and you continue to evolve, and you continue to build things, and you have cacophony of technologies and patterns and whatnot. Also, both companies had, by the time I got there, a number of acquisitions. And when you acquire companies, you're going to have different um, stack for those uh, companies. Uh, So I, I think... The part that is very interesting for both of these companies is like, okay, what do you do with this? How do you evolve 
something that is very complex by the nature of just how the company got to be successful, but also complex because the customers that you're dealing with are really complex and have needs that are difficult sometimes to get uh, uh, uniform and say, I'm building this and it's going to work for all the customers. So in enterprise software, it's a little bit different. Um, I think the part that was very interesting about Medidata is right as the cloud was becoming something that everyone was starting to look into and service-oriented architecture was becoming mainstream, the business needs of Medidata truly aligned with those architectural patterns. Um, we uh, wanted to start from, to, to move from just electronic data capture and the one product that uh, Medidata had to a platform. And we recognize that if you want to give something to the providers, the hospital, doctors and nurses to work on multiple clinical trials across pharmas, you really need some of that multi-tenancy. You don't want them to take the same uh, courses multiple times. You don't want them to have multiple logins. If they are going to use Medidata's software, they should log in once and see all their clinical trials and if they are to be trained on Medidata's EDC module or whatever module, they should take the training one. So there was this need for multi-tenancy, and then there was this potential of cloud. So it was just a fascinating moment where what was becoming like this uh, gold star in terms of architecture really aligned with the, with the business need. Now, fast forward to where we are now, a lot of these patterns have become mainstream, but I think we've lost a little bit of that no, no, the word is not coming to me. It's like that lean thinking to recognize that some of these patterns are really not just applicable in every single case, right? And and if you start uh, a project really planning for the most scalable, more most architecturally beautiful thing, you're probably going to over-design and have something super expensive, difficult to operate. And I, I think that at Colibra, we have some of those needs but because we are actually um, working across industries, across domains, there is very little of that repeatability that justifies uh, multi-tenancy. A lot of multi-tenancy, it's around technical components more than just functional components. So technology decisions, in my mind, going back to what I said, I'm like a pragmatic mission-driven technologist, are first about what does the customer need? and what is good for the business. It's not about asking, uh, can we do this? Yes, if you have a smart team of engineers, you can do anything. Like I, I've learned that. I, I worked in a number of programming language. I can read more than I can write. Smart engineers can implement anything you throw at them. That doesn't mean that you should do it. It's like the right question is not, can we do it? It's should we do it? Can we build a sustainable business model around it? Can we provide real value? And can we do it in, you know, commercial, com commercially sensible ways? Like we spend a tremendous amount of money to build it and to operate it, probably shouldn't build it. Yeah. I mean, this is like such a extravagant, amazing response, right? You, you touched upon so many different ideas. And also I can see how you as a CTO, are looking at things, right, when you come and build solutions. So when you were talking about metadata and the early cloud, right, I want to dissect this response of yours and kind of go at each of those. I'm curious, like, what was the cloud you guys first started exploring? And like, how did the solution? Right, we, we were early adopters of AWS. And um, 
for the longest time, we were like really just in uh, lockstep with them. Like we, they would just throw something in beta and we would try it because we were like so absolutely amazed and fascinated by uh, the potential there where I'm pretty sure that in some cases we overdid it because we got the shiny object like, oh, AWS is doing this. We probably should try it. But I think it was this also almost miraculous reality of the business needs and the uh, advancements in technology really, really matching. But yes, it was AWS. Um, it was a great time where right now I feel like we have so many choices that we spend a great deal of time even trying to figure out what of the many choices we have. There weren't that many. And AWS is pretty awesome. I'm, I'm a big fan of AWS's technology organization. Um, the second part of what I, just from this I wanted to thread was you brought about, hey, we had this tendency to like take a solution and maybe overfit that solution, right? Like we do the same thing with data too sometimes. But uh, you brought up a very good point like that for every company, you don't really need to like start like by applying the over architecting it and we have seen some examples right uh, i don't know if you know about this amazon prime who completely changed the architecture to serverless um, you know and then brought everything back uh, to a monolithic architecture you know like they went i i knew that they were going to move to uh, serverless and service oriented architecture i didn't realize they went they went back but i'm not surprised um, because you know even when you're the creator of these patterns and you've demonstrated again and again that they are good patterns, I think you you need to have that um, realization sometimes that sometimes simple uh, patterns, even though your engineers might say, oh, they're legacy and we're not modern, really the right thing to do. And they are going to find places and ways to be modern and innovate, but innovate in your space. Don't innovate in just for the sake of innovation. Yeah, and I think, it, the key is also like you've been in the space for a while like challenges keep changing scale changes user requirements change and back in the day like i don't know if like i, I joke about this in pretty much every podcast is that um you know some, something went down for a bit like if a server was down or something the max you would get was an email saying service was down and yeah we are working on it now if something is down you hear about it on twitter <laughs> <laughs> And it's, it's like, and the, the CEO is involved and, you know, everybody's like, what, what happened to the service? Why is, the, you know, so things have changed, paradigms have changed. And Calibra obviously has uh, a pedigree in terms of what they've been doing. Like I was researching about the company, you have some great products around catalog and data governance, but what are your challenges like now? Of course, like from similar products, like what are you uh, solving uh, at least priority wise right now? I mean, obviously, we have a large number of customers who are already using what we have. So for us, it's constantly about providing extra feature, um, extra features in, in the areas that we are already uh, pretty well established. Um, scale, obviously, there is always uh, that one customer that uh, is ramping up faster than we anticipated. And, uh, you know, when people freak out about scale, I, I really like to reference uh, Dr. Vogel, who's saying that, uh, you know, scale breaks everything. And instead of thinking it as a problem, you really just embrace it as, you know, just a measure of how successful you are. Because we all, you know, try to think about scale and plan thinking like, okay, this is has Low, as large as this load is going to be or data set is going to be and you plan for that and when you exceed it it's like okay we are more successful than we ever imagined that we are going to be in this area this is good people let's let's figure out how we fix it so of course you know as we grew and and we got some of the um, really large 
companies out there use Culebra, we, we are really trying to figure out how we um, adjust to the tremendous amount of data, right? Metadata is, um, metadata is a lot right now. We uh, have just incomprehensible amount of data that these companies have. We only bring into our platform the metadata for that. And we are speaking about billions of assets and billions of uh, pieces of information that uh, have to go there to have a full landscape uh, of what a company has and where. Um, and and sometimes uh, those uh, those objects are pretty complex. So definitely trying to stay ahead of the needs of our customers um, is is top of mind. But of course, um, AI has changed everything, and um, we are feeling pretty excited by how synergetic what we've built for managing data is with what's needed to do proper AI governance. Um, and everybody's speaking, I, I don't know, I don't remember us discussing a few months ago about AI governance. I think it was, you know, just a tiny topic there. But right now, everybody's speaking about AI governance. And as we started thinking about what does it even mean, AI governance, you realize that for every company, it means something else. It ranges from, you know, what AWS and uh, GCP and Microsoft are doing with really trying to understand the the data observability and looking at those models, security, access control, whatever, uh, from companies that just want a model repository and want to document all the use cases that they have because, you know, their customers or regulators are worried about AI being evil. So it's all over the place. But the reality is that it's both of these things. Like if you are to do AI governance right, you need to understand your model and ensure that the model is for a specific given purpose and you constantly validate that the model does what you intended it to do. But there is also that part of model combined with data that you use for training. And you need to understand what data you're using, who's changing the data, who has access to data, how the data was transformed. And, and these are all components that Colibra has. So we're like, Tremendously excited about the possibility to not only just be part of this AI wave, but meaningfully influence how uh, AI governance is done and uh, how the future is going to look. And what you brought up is a very interesting point, right? For every enterprise, you know, this is a different problem, you know, and, um, you know, the way they look at this problem, uh, especially what you said about looking at uh, like a RAG system, right, where you have your own data and you have a large language model coming together and working. But you brought up a point that I, I was not thinking about. That is, hey, people are changing this data. So who changed what? Because what they change affects the overall result that the output will produce to the user. Uh, and, uh, and it's a fascinating problem to solve. And you guys are right in the middle of that. But, but it's also, you know, because we've already solved that for, for different purposes, like, you know, big companies and just companies that use Colibra have always wanted to know for data sets that were particularly important for regulatory compliance or for business decision, They've always wanted to know who has access to the data, who changes it. And now the same data products are used to train AI models. It's even more important if you're going to use AI uh, with all the anxiety and paranoia around AI and the unknowns around AI. It's even more important to have those sensors and to do it right. So I, I don't think that we can do meaningful AI governance without really having uh, the data governance and cataloging and lineage. 
yeah that's brilliant yeah you you previously were we were talking about and i i really i'm going to quote quote take that quote as it is when uh, about scale that you said when you're scaling and scale breaks everything uh, i i had not heard that uh, quote yeah it's not mine it's dr vogel so you know let's uh... yeah well, we'll, well, I'll quote, I'll say I heard from you and then you quoted someone else. But, it's a whole, but that is a very profound thought. The uh, the thought that, hey, if something else breaks and scale breaks everything, it's also a good sign for you as a company to look, look and know that, hey, we are doing something right. That's why this is breaking. So there is a positive outlook towards it. Um, how, are, how are you designed for scale at Colibra? Like in the sense, like your infrastructure, is it running again on cloud? And uh, how do you, uh, like, tell me what you can without uh it's giving the secret sauce you know so yeah i mean it, it's something that is necessarily um, a secret sauce uh per se it, it's very much about um philosophically i i think you need to prepare for success but i really don't think that you need to prepare for success that is so far off you're going to spend so much um you know preparing for that success that you're going to miss the train and you're going to have nothing. And and I think this is a mistake that many startups do, especially now when there are all these patterns and everybody wants to be like Google, where you go and you over-design your MVP. And by the time you have it out, you have three other companies that have done it and you're out of business and out of money. Um, and, and I think this can be the case at every stage, right? I mean, you you think what's the next milestone and you design for that plus and you have a plan about okay if we reach there what's our next step how easy is for us to evolve and transform that but i think it's also important to be very pragmatic and realize that nobody's going to wait for you forever that these companies have needs and they have them now and you have to constantly have that balance between speed and uh, uh, you know scalability um don't compromise on quality don't compromise on security don't compromise on uh, reliability for the scale that you're set to have. But in terms of scaling, you know, there are trade-offs. Uh, and in terms of even uptime and reliability, there are tra- trade-offs and you get to the point of diminishing returns. So I would say, understand your business, understand what's important for the customers, understand how fast they are going to grow and how fast your fastest growing customer is, is growing and, and plan for, you know, the next year, the next two years, but don't get crazy. And um, that's that's what I'm trying to do uh, as I'm working with with the engineering team at Culibra to to anticipate what's coming, but have that constant trade off conversation between uh, non functionals and the need for features and the reality that right now there is this big need that everyone has uh, is more important than anything else for us to. Uh, for sure, yeah. So you have to be customer user driven but at the same time engineer in the right way so that you're not affecting overall balance of things right so you kind of hinted a little bit which i feel is also sort of like i was curious to know was and now as a leader as a cto you know what are your engineering philosophy uh, that you bring to calibra like you say it to your team say this of course you mentioned some obviously but uh, are there others that you kind of encourage the team to kind of go after and do things in a certain way I kind of hinted at this. We we have a very interesting mixed tech stack where we have cloud-enabled technologies. We, there was a bit of lift and shift that happened and then evolution and con- we continue to evolve. We have cloud-native part of our uh, platform. Um, what I'm trying to do on the engineering side is really just have these guiding principles in terms of architecture and technology and say, hey, we need to be... Uh, 
as much as possible 12 factor because that's super important to our ability to be reliable and to be consistent and to be able to move really fast. Um, we need to go towards uh, building stateless products and solutions because that's how you're going to be able to um, auto-scale and that's how you're going to be able to have no downtime deployments and all these things that have become just table stakes as a SaaS provider. And then, um, you know, I really think that we should innovate in our space. If we can buy it, we should buy it. I don't think we should reinvent the wheel. Uh, we are multi-cloud, which is a complexity. Um, at some point, we wanted to be cloud agnostic. And that meant that almost everything needed to be built by us, right? Because you're saying, hey, if I'm cloud agnostic, I can deploy Colibra anywhere. Well, there is nothing that right now that I know of that works for everywhere, right? So then we kind of said, hey, let's take a step back and recognize that we are not cloud agnostic, we are multi-cloud. There are these three, four big clouds and we want to be able to be in those three clouds. So let's leverage managed services. So definitely, you know, very intentional buy versus build where possible so we can innovate in our space. And then, um, you know, API first. No matter how beautiful you think your UI is, we are working in the enterprise space. There's going to be a company out there that wants their own UI on top of Culebra. And it shouldn't be that we get into the business of writing 20 different versions of our UI. Give them API, they build it however they want it, right? Uh, so, so definitely there are these guiding principles. But in terms of engineering culture, um, I, um, I think the team is... M- more than the sum of the parts. And, and I, I think, you know, having uh, people who really are committed to what you're trying to do, who are uh, fair players, who really work together, who are honest, who love freedom and are worthy of freedom, it's a very important part of the culture that I want to build. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. I mean, I, I, you are like the right CTO here. Look at you mixing technology, <laughs> experience, and great codes together. No, I was, I, I'm really inspired by some of the things you were saying, right? Like, uh, especially the idea of, uh, you know, where you brought up the idea that you have all these people working together and you, they need to own, be accountable to what you're trying to build. So one of the things I was curious to was like engineers have this habit to kind of go after certain things. They're like, hey, can we do this technology? Can we do that technology? So there's always this thought process of R&D and research. So how do you uh, encourage innovation, obviously, in R&D, but at the same time, make sure that these are activities focused towards, you know, the product that you're building or the feature that you're building? I mean, uh, I think there is a need for some... Uh, space to play. Uh, I think engineers need that. And I think uh, um, no one has monopoly on uh, the best idea. The best idea, the breakthrough idea can come from anyone. And and, and if you don't create this place, time, place, space, you might miss on really, really big things out there. Uh, that's not to say that every idea and even every prototype becomes... Uh, uh, reality. So uh, we we have at Colibra uh, something that we call Innovation Day. It's uh, something like a ten percent variation of Google's twenty percent with a bit of structure around it. Um, but you know we we have these hacking days, and sometimes is okay. Let's fix the bugs. Let's fix our logs. Let's fix whatever is the the problem that everyone is most cranky about. And then there are some like okay, let's play with AI and let's see what's come what comes out of it. Or you know there is this. Uh, thinking our product that 
you know, it's kind of eh, anyone has any idea, right? Um, in terms of new technologies, um, I again, spikes happen. It's like there is this new thing you want to play, you want to try, you think it's the right solution there. But we do have a, a process for introducing new technology because, again, it has to make sense. And you have to think more than just like, is the right technology for solving my this tiny problem? It's like, okay, how are we going to deploy it? How are we going to support it? How, are, how often we need to patch it? Uh, who's going to keep an eye on it? Who's going to be getting the alarm at 3am and all that? And, you know, there has to be a really, really good need for us to introduce something and usually more than just one team needing it. Yeah, I, I wanted to go back while you, while you were saying, right, like th this whole idea, like you don't want people to wake up, right? And again, you also have this problem if, who the right person should be, who should wake up. And that stems from what you were previously mentioning because you, know, you have to have a cloud agnostic solution. That means you have to have somebody who understands GCP, somebody who understands, uh, you know, AWS. And that's a different problem, right? Uh, like we at Cockroach Labs, we have Cockroach DB, which is also cloud agnostic. And I've worked at another company before I came to Cockroach Labs, uh, was also cloud agnostic. And one of the challenges always was, hey, who's the Microsoft guy? <laughs> who can help me with this problem that I'm seeing. And then we would, uh, but you as a leader have to plan for situations like that because you have to have a balance of the right engineers and right uh, people and hiring becomes a, a key aspect of that as well, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it takes a lot of discipline in uh, making architectural choices to remember that you can't just use everything that AWS has to offer because you need to have an equivalent solution in GCP and Azure or you know, in some cases, uh, working with the government, they want it on-prem, right? So uh, there are limitations in terms of what we can choose. Um, in, in terms of, you know, getting the call in the middle of the night, I, I don't think we have that much uh, problem that has to do with differences between clouds because uh, we have uniform ways of deploying and monitoring and uh, just run books that are applicable irrespective of where a customer or a service is hosted. Um, we haven't knocking out right now. I'm going to jinx myself. Might have some weird problem that has to do with the clouding, but we haven't had a lot of those. What are you excited for as a CTO? What at Calibra? What are you guys building? Of course, you mentioned AI. What's what can we anticipate? Uh, what can people who use AI uh, at Calibra anticipate, or just users of uh, you know Calibra? As as a technologist, more than CTO or CTO of Calibra, I'm really. Um, very uh, excited about the developments in AI. And um, even as a parent, right, I, I think so much is going to be different in five years. It's the how much has changed from December of 2022 until now. It's unbelievable. Like a lot of the AI and especially generative AI was something that was the uh, for academics right like you you had a bunch of phd people looking and playing with it and they were in their corner and nobody's looking at what they were doing and right now it's everywhere it's every every person even like non technologists they are playing with it and they are looking at it and if you're thinking about just how fast it is adopted and how how much we've democratized this ideation space and how many people can in fact Leverage AI is amazing. And I, I think engineering in five years, maybe less, is going to be very different. We already have Copilot that can code as a, you know, C5 engineer and um, can build test automation and do a whole bunch of stuff adequately. 
So engineers need to learn how to do something else or how to use AI differently to differentiate themselves. Um, medicine, like you're probably going to go to a doctor and the doctor is going to be um, a psychologist of sorts that is convincing you to follow your treatment plan and whatnot. Education. Uh, we already see with Khan Academy just how amazing is to have personalized education where, you know, that AI assistant knows where you're weak and it just gives you the right lesson plan. Uh, and so much is going to be different. And I find it fascinating as a technologist to see where we're going to be in a few years, given just how fast we are moving right now. No, I mean, I'm, I'm with you on that. I feel like the speed is like, it's insane. I mean, I don't know if you know this. Yesterday, OpenAI released a new model, which is insanely good. It's called Sora, S-O-R-A. And it does text to video. But it's uh, it's so good that it can... I mean, I showed it to a bunch of my friends. and said, hey, man, I shot this video. How do you feel about this? And they were like, wow, this is really good. And then I told them after five minutes, it's AI generated. And they were like, what? <laughs> insane i mean you should go check it out you know uh, no I, I haven't i haven't played with it it's like i feel like it's it's this um you know one of the giants between microsoft and, and google each one of them kind of releasing new trying to up themselves which gets me to think it's going to be great it's going to be great for all of us yeah i think what uh, yeah, i mean Sora is not available it's just videos that they had shared i took that and shared with somebody but um i'm with you on the fact that in the future pretty much everybody that we know will be will have to adopt AI in some way in their workflow. Otherwise, they're going to be a little bit behind in terms of... Because the world is moving way quickly. Like, as you said, Copilot has become so important because you can, like, code something that would take you six hours. Of course, you know how to code, but just AI Copilot really helps you finish that in an hour or one and a half hours, which is good for companies, a lot of things. So it's uh, it's exciting, yeah. I mean, it's more than that. I mean, let's say that you have a dependency on, on another team. Like, let's say you're a, a business analyst and you have a dependency of your data office and their data engineers and you kind of go there and use uh, your AI of choice, the GPT of choice that your company has and say, hey, can I have some uh, Python code to do this? And before you know it, your dependency, like, yeah, it's not as good if a data engineer did it, but you're unblocked. You're not in a queue waiting for them forever. True. That's a very good point. So I know a few questions, uh, but I wanted to ask you one last question. Like, you What's your advice to engineers who are on this path uh, to leadership and CTO? Like, what what are your what are your things that you've learned from your career? I mean, obviously, I didn't plan to be where I am, so I don't know exactly if my path is is a repeatable path. But um, I, I would say, know why you're doing it, right? Like, uh, moving from engineer to manager requires different skill set. You have to let go of a lot of things. You have to do work through others. Uh, you have to build skills. You have to let go of some skills. Um, it's a big, big transition and you have to know why you're doing it and for what reason, what's your purpose? Is it selfish? Is it because you want to make more impact? All answers are valid, but the paths might be different depending on what's your answer. Um, what I would say to technologies right now is that just prepare yourself for a journey where you're going to have to learn all the time. It was always the case. Technologies are changing so much. I feel like I've been through so many technologies myself in uh, the many years that I've uh, spent in uh, software engineering. But right now is like amazing just how much things are changing. So 
you're embarking as an individual contributor or as leader on a journey of continuous learning, and you should be prepared for that. Um, and also, what I said that was the biggest differentiator for me, truly uh, recognize that as a leader, your job is more than just creating a technology vision and executing on that technology vision. It's super important to explain it to the non-technical stakeholders in a way that they understand because that's how you're going to get buy-in and that's how you're going to make those great things happen. Yeah, I mean, that's amazing. Uh, have you ever considered writing a book in the future? Uh, yes, uh, but... Um, I mean, I always say that when I grow up, I want to be a, a writer for the New Yorker or, or something like that. Um, and before I wanted to be an architect, I actually wanted to be a writer um, someday. It's fascinating uh, to know that uh, you've chosen to do what you do uh, from your journey uh, that began somewhere in Bucharest. Uh, and you've brought uh, such a joy to me talking about this uh, a journey uh, and I'm, I'm super fascinated with what you and Calibra are going to do so thank you so much and we will catch you in the next one thank you for having me